3: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network by and for Australia's climate community. During the month of February, we're doing something quite special. We're getting to run a mini-series from Impact Studios. That's the in-house podcast production studio for the University of Technology, Sydney. This series focuses on what we can do as Australians in the face of the climate crisis. Last week's episode was uh, former Premier Bob Carr talking to Rebecca Huntley, esteemed social researcher and author, about what we can do as individuals to communicate more effectively about climate change. But this week it's all about the systemic, the macro, and realizing that in the year since the Black Summer fires, we have done hardly anything as a nation. This particular episode with Zally Stegel and Martine Wilder is all about things we can do, uh, some things the industry are starting to do, and the exciting new climate bill and what that would mean for the country. But I'd like to start this episode, just take a quick moment before I kick you over to UTS for Climate, to note the date. As I record this, it's the 6th of February. And yesterday was 100 days since the Bushfire Royal Commission released its final recommendations. I'm now going to quickly read you some words from Major General Peter Dunn, former commissioner of the ACT Emergency Services Authority and a member of Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. Quote, Today marks 100 days since the Bushfire Royal Commission released its final recommendations. It has also been 100 days without any decisive action on climate change from the federal government in response. As I write this, firefighters are battling intense blazes in Western Australia, where people have lost their homes and more than 10,000 hectares of bushland and wildlife habitat have burned. Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, a coalition of 33 former senior fire and emergency service leaders, has repeatedly requested information on the federal government's position in relation to 14 federal and 41 shared federal, state, and territory recommendations from the Bushfire Royal Commission. And so far, we've received no clear answer on what the federal government has committed to this is not good enough so what does the federal government need to do many of the bushfire royal commission's key recommendations outline how to help communities prepare adapt and build resilience to climate change as well as ways to assist our emergency services in dealing with worsening extreme weather driven by climate change the federal government must accept all recommendations in full and take responsibility for the recommendations it's responsible for including those shared with states and territories. Release a costed plan and provide funding in the upcoming federal budget. Recognize the Royal Commission's strong message on climate change and take urgent action to tackle the root cause of extreme weather and worsening disasters. This means no new coal, oil, or gas projects, a rapid transition to renewable energy, and a credible climate policy that matches what the science says is necessary. We are determined to hold Federal, State, and Territory governments accountable to the findings of the Bushfire royal Commission. We are keeping up the pressure on the Federal Government until all recommendations are implemented swiftly and in full. From the Black Summer fires that ravaged the East Coast last year, to the fires raging in the Perth Hills right now, Bushfire survivors, emergency service workers, and volunteers are living the consequences of accelerating climate change. You can't fight fires unless you fight climate change. Failing to act urgently to reduce emissions is putting Australians' lives and livelihoods at risk. So we'll use our independence and draw from decades of combined disaster response to push for all of the Bushfire Royal Commission's recommendations to be timed, costed, and implemented. We'll keep up the drumbeat on extreme weather by elevating impacted and expert voices in the media. And we'll continue meeting and briefing federal, state, and territory decision-makers to ensure they take tangible climate action based on the science. The Bushfire Royal Commission was clear. We have already entered a period of severe consequences for our inaction on climate change. We don't have time to dilly-dally or delay. End quote. That was Major General Peter Dunn, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, I just wanted to read that quickly here at the start of this episode, as this is an episode all about the systemic and the large scale, and it can get easy to get lost amongst that, where a certain climate change bill is at or what a certain subsidy will do, or even trying to understand how the current system of subsidies works in the benefit of the fossil fuel industry. So I just wanted to make sure to mark the date here and read those comments from Peter Dunn, and to reach out to groups like Emergency Leaders for Climate Action to bushfire survivors for climate action. It's so great to see groups like this focused on intersectional issues cropping up across society, across Australia and globally as well. Before I leave you in the very capable hands of Impact Studios, I'd just like to say that during the month of February, when we've got this time off, we're using it to launch a group of our own. Podcasters declare a climate and biodiversity emergency. It's great to see architects and city planners marketing communications professionals, and healthcare workers setting up industry-specific climate action groups or climate emergency declaration groups. What these groups actually do varies a lot between them, but they're all united by the shared belief and understanding that we have to call climate change for the crisis that it is. We have to declare we're in an emergency footing, and business as usual within our industries isn't good enough anymore. We can't just go to work and then do activism on the side or care about climate on the weekends. We have to make it part of everything because it's already affecting everything. So the first action by Podcasters Declare is an open letter written to Apple. You all know, of course, the Apple company, uh, but they make Apple Podcasts, the world's largest podcast app. Within Apple Podcasts is a podcast directory This is basically the card file, the the Dewey Decimal System, the way of finding podcasts. And within that category system, you'll find true crime, which was added in 2019. You'll find society and culture. You'll find science and sports. But you won't find climate and you won't find environment. And that means for a show like Climactic, it can be quite hard for new listeners to find us. And we're not alone. There are now hundreds of climate podcasts out there and we're gathering them all together to ask Apple for a climate category. You as a listener of a show can help us. You can tell the hosts of the shows you love to sign the Podcasters Declare open letter. Just go to podcastersdeclare.com. You'll find resources on how you can share the word, you can read our open letter, and you can send us a message if you'd like. But we're only taking signatures of the open letter from podcasters. And this is because for Apple Podcasts, This is the feedback they need to see. They need to see that there are hundreds or thousands of podcasts in their directory that are currently not labeled correctly, and that they can very quickly and easily help them. We saw it in 2019. Apple added a true crime, a history, and a fiction category. And I'm happy they did. I'm a podcast fan through and through, and the easier it is to find shows means it's better for the show creator for us, the listener, and for Apple. But if you're hearing my words right now, I think you would agree that the true crime here is silence on the climate crisis. And with your help, we can raise the volume for climate-engaged podcasts. Thanks for listening. Just get along to podcastersdeclare.com to find out more. And now, here's episode three of five of the UTS for Climate miniseries. Enjoy!
0: The UTS for Climate podcast series is made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney, an audio production house funded by the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research. To the south there were bushfires, to the west there were bushfires, to the north there were bushfires.
4: It's been labelled an apocalypse and like looking into the gates of hell. When people's houses are burning and
5: you've lost lives and you've lost friends and you've lost family, you don't think, oh, this is climate change. You think, what am I going to do next and how am I going to save myself?
1: The summer of 2019 will go down in history. It was a savage summer with devastating fires that saw the Australian eastern seaboard scorched and cloaked in smoke. Australia's long spell of hot and dry weather brought on an intense and unprecedented fire season we simply weren't prepared for. Lives were lost, homes destroyed, and millions of animals perished. This was a wake-up call for many. Hi, my name's Erica Wagner. I study marine science in Sydney, Australia, and I also work at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. And you're listening to the third episode of our UTS for Climate podcast. As our world heats up, events like the bushfires are being called our new normal. Our last fire season was devastating and a new call for action was firmly back on the agenda. These fires were catastrophic and it was the first time for many of us living in major Australian cities that climate change wasn't just an abstract concept. You could see it, smell it, even taste it as large smoke clouds choked up your lungs and stung the back of your throat. The air quality in Sydney reached 11 times the hazardous level. As we brace ourselves for another fire season, this is a critical time to have a conversation about the changes Australia can make right now. In this episode of UTS for Climate, Professor Bob Carr speaks with independent MP for Warringah, Zali Stiegel, who was elected in 2019 on a platform of pursuing national climate action. And she is joined by founding partner of Pollination Group, Martin Wilder, a world leader in climate law and sustainable investing. Martine believes Australia could lead the way in the race to decarbonise. Here's Bob kicking off the conversation.
2: So, Zali, let me put to you first, if your legislation were in place now and the Australian government had a statutory obligation to bring forward a plan to cut emissions, what would you like to see in that plan?
5: If we had that long-term commitment to a net zero by 2050, and it's really clear important for everyone to understand, that is balancing the budget when it comes to our emissions. This is nothing drastic. It's something that many countries around the world are committed to, our state governments around Australia are committed to, and most large corporations are committed to. So if we have that commitment from the federal government, it would mean every stimulus, every recovery measure would be passed through a prism of guiding principles, which would require a low emission priority. So for example, home builder package and announcements that the government Released some short time ago, would be linked to lowering emissions, energy efficiency of homes, for example. These are all ways in which every stimulus package could be working towards a greater good for Australia.
2: Would energy efficiency be a big part of that? It's a, a major focus of the Institute for Sustainable Futures here at UTS, and people don't seem to realise that being more efficient about industry is probably the easiest way to get towards that 2050 goal?
5: To achieve net zero, it's got to be done across many sectors. Now, 50% of our emissions are around energy production and supply. So clearly that's why we have such a conversation in Australia around energy, renewables, coals, fossil fuels, and now the talk from the government around a gas-led recovery. But... Energy is also in the home and in and in manufacturing and industry and how it's actually applied. And so there is the other side of the coin where we can be more efficient and more proactive in how we use it. So, for example, home builder schemes that are geared towards renewable energy but also storage. I think we are still behind and we have great progress and capability in terms of developing microgrids in residential areas. We know New South Wales government has renewable energy zones planned. There's a lot that can be done to accelerate our uptake and our efficiency around homes. So, so of course, storage is a big part of the equation. So the more we can focus on that on batteries, I think we will make great gains.
2: Martin, what uh, emphasis would you give when it comes to designing a package that a government would be obliged to bring forward? where there's a statutory obligation to produce a plan to cut emissions?
4: Yeah, well, I think your point about a statutory obligation to produce a plan is very important because, as Zali's proposed bill so shows, if you articulate clearly in that legislation what has to be delivered, then governments are forced to act. And I'll just give you two very good examples of that. Your own legislation when you were Premier, which you introduced in New South Wales Emissions Trading Scheme, that drove action in the economy. In Victoria, they have a Climate Change Act now and the government's required to produce plans and every five years... They have to look at how they change those plans. And so it really focuses the mind of the government across every sector to look at putting in place measures that will ultimately move you towards the goal of reducing emissions to zero by 2050. So legislation is really important because it plays a role in driving action, whereas just sort of soft policy doesn't do that to the same extent.
2: Well, if the legislation were in place and the government were putting together its first plan to reduce emissions, what would you and your colleagues like to see with pride of place in that plan?
4: Well, I think, first of all, the target is very important. So what is the aspiration? And Zali's bill does this very well. Secondly, how will you get there and setting in place the measures? So there are really two tracks here. One is that you could, I guess, have an overriding framework legislation, which I guess is is the approach which Zali's bill does, which is very much about decision-making and making sure in every decision that you make, you take climate change into account which the business sector is doing now, but government should also do that, particularly when they're expending public money. Across each sector, you have a plan to decarbonise those sectors, and then within those sectors, you have measures that actually drive investment into decarbonisation. Because one of the challenges at the moment is that we often have have vision, but not the actual implementation.
2: Yeah, I've been struck by what what the two of you have said about business. I was astonished at how much has been crammed into this year. When everyone's distracted by COVID-19, business boardrooms shifting their position. It's a major shift in investment. You've now got a position where Japanese banks, Allianz, the German insurer, BlackRock in the US, none of them will put money, not a cent, into thermal coal. And you look at the big energy companies, the energy giants, especially the Europeans, making it very clear that the net goes further than thermal coal. Shell the other day making a point about gas. They regard gas as a carbon fuel. We'll we'll come back to gas because the Australian government's giving such uh, a priority to it. But business is a long way ahead of the Australian government, and that's a remarkable thing.
5: Absolutely. I mean, you just have to look at the recovery stimulus in the EU. 750 billion euros, but required in those packages is that it be towards lowering emissions, and there has to be a disclosure of carbon emission risk in relation to the project. So that's, there's no doubt that big blocks like the EU and major countries are moving in that direction, and are making that a key guiding principle of how they make their decisions, which is why it's so important for Australia to do it or we will be left behind. You look at the UK, they've had a climate change bill for over 10 years now, so they've been able to have two five-year emission reduction budgets. They can see how a legislative framework is efficient in driving investment and advances in technology and lowering emission. When I've spoken to people in the UK, they very much describe it as it's decoupling economic growth from emissions, and that's what I think we desperately need in Australia.
4: The other tact about legislation is that although in Australia carbon tax pricing carbon is considered to be politically unacceptable, many, many countries around the world do have a price on carbon. And again, yourself introduced one in New South Wales, uh, the federal government introduced one, and during those periods emissions dropped and people responded to that. And the truth is that many companies today in Australia put a price on carbon into their project modelling. So it's not an anathema for businesses to have this, yet we seem to be in this very difficult political bind in Australia where any discussion of climate change is just very politically difficult.
5: My understanding is we're at real risk of having carbon tariffs imposed on Australian goods at the border for countries, for the EU, for example, if we don't have good energy reduction policy. So whilst there's a reluctance to look at those kind of mechanisms in Australia, the equivalence may well be imposed upon us by our trading partners.
2: Well, the government seems to have pivoted away from coal, thermal coal, but it's talking up gas. Something you said raises the possibility that they won't find investors prepared to put money into gas power plants. If the European companies are all guided by policies that say we don't put investors' funds at risk from carbon-related activities, there's no doubt to my mind that that is going to be for a cautious board, a warning about investing in gas fields or gas plants, power plants in Australia. And I I think the government is going to find that the the world energy sector will not respond to them putting out the shingle and saying, come to Australia, be part of our gas-led recovery.
5: I think that's very true. I don't think, and my understanding from talking to analysts, talking to people within that private investment sector of whether there is confidence in gas in terms from an investment point of view, there was already pre-COVID, there was a great reluctance and uncertainty. It's not seen as a stable market. There is a great fear that there will be a climate-driven reset from an investment point of view. Now, we can either be at the forefront of that in terms of having legislated and have plans in place so that Australians, investors and investors into Australian projects can feel confidence that we're equipped for the reset, or we will have a big disruption, and that is not what investors are looking for.
4: And it's interesting if you turn to the U.S. as example. People talk about the coal seam gas sector. The coal seam gas sector in America is basically collapsing before our eyes, and the problem is that. In order to make that economic, you need a higher price for gas, but that higher price can't compete with cheaper renewables. And if you're doing things like coal seam gas, it's a huge amount of upfront investment that takes many years to get back. Whereas with renewable energy, you can build it quickly, it's a lot cheaper, and it outcompetes that other form of energy, which is gas, and so the result is that in the US now we're seeing an entire collapse of the coal seam gas industry.
2: Yeah, it's been held up to Australians as a model for so many years. Uh, We should go the way of Americans on fracking. It's given them cheap energy. But I haven't seen Australian papers actually report the bankruptcies of those associated with fracking in the United States. It's a business model that has fallen on its face.
5: And in the United States, the growth in renewable energy is is huge. It is now by far the fastest growing sector and now equivalent to coal in 2019. So there's no doubt that it's happening. What's interesting about the the gas-fired recovery talk is what we really should be talking about is be technology agnostic. Let's not hitch our wagon to any particular technology, but let's give everything a proper economic merit assessment to make sure that it stacks up so that public money is invested for the long-term future, that it should create jobs, there should be stimulus that comes from projects, project, but it should also stack up economically so that that public investment is worthwhile. And from all reports, it's very clear that its renewables stack up, storage stacks up. Uh, Of course, a lot of talk around green hydrogen and and where the new technologies might be. But there's great uncertainty when it comes to gas.
2: I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that there is a fleet of satellites circling the Earth, even as we speak, measuring gas in the atmosphere. And they're so precise, they can home in on a plume of gas coming out of a wetlands in in South Sudan or some faulty technology in a field or a a compressing plant in uh, West Turkmenistan. They are so precise. And they include European, Japanese and Canadian uh, satellites. If the evidence mounts with the data they're collecting that there is serious leakage at a much higher level than ever before guessed at from the gas industry. The pressure at the next International Climate Conference, expected in November next year, will be pretty strong. I can imagine the European delegates saying, well, our own satellites are telling us this, about methane leaking into the upper atmosphere and at levels we only guessed at before. We can now confirm it. Huge pressure then on Australia... And the pressure could come, as you say, in in the form of tariffs put on our exports, not only by the Europeans, but by the United States, which finds carbon tariffs quite an appealing way of forcing China and India to do as much as America and the Europeans are doing.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's the irony of we often hear from members of the coalition and government that the argument against proper action in terms of reducing emissions is this idea that we're only 1.3% of world emissions and really the big emitters need to do their bit. I mean, it ignores the reality that we're the 14th largest per capita emitter so we are a really important part of the equation but countries will take action if other countries are not coming on board and taking the necessary action there will be consequences and we will find ourselves on the receiving end I think if we take the analogy of the virus where inefficient maybe border control not a strong enough measures within certain countries about reducing the spread of the virus then there's that question of well okay do we want an open border to that country if they're not taking proper care I think impact when it comes comes to climate change will be quite similar, that we'll see ourselves on the receiving end of a world movement wanting to take action. I
4: think it also plays out. At a government level, we have a lot of political debate, but what actually happens in the business level is quite different. I think at the moment, we've had the BCA in recent weeks call for a net zero emissions future, but the government has not done that, and yet we're also seeing many people who buy our products asking for those products to be offset. So there was a, a large Asian government recently put out a tender for LNG. And in the LNG, they said, we, we want the supply to be offset with carbon offsets. This is a government asking for carbon neutral gas. Now, when we start to see those sorts of dynamics play out, that means that you have to basically provide gas that is basically emissions free. The other thing that we're seeing is that there's increasing talk about scope three emissions. So no matter, for countries like BHP, Rio, Enel, many countries are looking at how to reduce the emissions that they create in other countries from their products. So we're seeing a lot of focus being on on a company's emissions, no matter where they are, and boards, as you quite rightly said, asking about what are the consequences of this. And quite frankly, investors just not being prepared to invest anything that has that climate risk. And the interesting thing, coming back to the COVID issue, is, is in Canada, any company above $300 million which wanted COVID relief had to demonstrate that they were disclosing their climate change impact under TCFD. So again, at a private sector level, I think it's moving much faster than a lot of the government policy is
2: from your knowledge of the private sector and and you're a lawyer in that field for 20 years what would be the atmosphere on the board of a company so say a bank some investment house if there are an investment proposal otherwise attractive but touching in some way the carbon sector what would be some of the issues that would be kicked around as the board looked on whether they should put shareholders' money or borrowings into such a project?
4: Well, I think the finance sector is actually further ahead of, the, of companies. That's the first point I'd make. And that most finance companies have incorporated TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate Financial Disclosure, into their decision-making. So in the same way that you assess OHS risk on any project, you also assess climate risk. And so if that particular project comes with a large climate risk, which might be an impact on the climate or it's subject to risk they will assess that risk as part of the process. And that's why nearly, well, I think all Australian banks now have said they will not invest in the coal sector. Many of them will not invest in CSG. That's uh, not only thermal coal, yep. but coking coal. Yep. And then also, in addition to that, you're seeing a lot of the Australian insurance companies saying we will not insure those sectors, we won't insure our coal companies. I think IAG last week said so they won't insure CST in Queensland, a coal seam gas. So we're seeing, basically, I would say the finance and insurance sector are really, they're very smart, they don't want to lose money, so they won't take the risk. I and mean, then I think on the corporate side, there are some corporates that are large Australian companies that are moving in that direction understand climate risk. I think for others, it's a bit of a shock the Nancy's are taking that view. And so I, was, I would say that while yeah, while the finance sector is very advanced, corporates are really starting now to catch up to that.
5: It's also where the pressure is coming from. It's coming from shareholders. It's coming from consumers. I think it's coming from employees' expectation within large corporates. There is now that director's responsibility when it comes to the board. And also then looking at their business models, because we saw, for example, in Australia, I think arguably we had our first climate refugees this summer. People evacuating from with the Australian Defence Force off Mallacoota Beach is not something Australians were quite prepared to see. We saw whole communities ravaged by the impacts of climate change through the bushfires. We know from the Royal Commission into the bushfires, over 400 deaths as a result of smoke and over 3,000 hospital admissions. So we've got very real impacts that are now coming on in terms of what do climate change impacts mean to people. This is not something for the never, never in 10 years time, I'll worry about it. It's It's now. now. It is now. now. And so that really impacts the business model as well. For example, I've had a number of meetings within the insurance industry and superannuation industry. Again, it's where the money is flowing. But from an insurance point of view, they're looking at the bands of risk around Australia. Geographically, we will have at risk of extreme weather events, storms, house storms, bushfires, flooding, which really impacts sections of the population and really impact their business models. So I think for many, many sectors, this is a reality. It's an everyday reality that they have to deal with.
2: You did something that few others have done. You you spoke to a community for months about this issue. Every day, just about every hour of every day <laughs> to win that marginal seat against uh, someone with the status of former Prime Minister. What did you learn about the public understanding of the issue? And I'm, I'm interested in where you got people holding out, people who might have been, shall we say, infected by climate change, scepticism or even denial?
5: I think what's really interesting is in Australia it's been so divisive for so long. We've had 10 years of polarisation around climate. And so it's a little judgmental, I would say as well. So some people have come to accepting climate risk and needing to lower emissions more recently than others. You know, some have been sort of worried about it for 10 years, some for five, some for less. And I think what we did well in Warringah was that it wasn't about judging. It wasn't about where were you or looking back. I did a panel with John Houston and Peter Garrett, and there was still a lot of talk about who did what when 10 years ago and, you know, the political baggage that there is. And I think it's Really important, and I know it's easy for me as a newcomer to present that. That I think we need to draw a line in the sand and look to the future, and not keep looking back as to who did what, when, to who, and undid whose and legislation. And did you say that
2: during the election? I
5: did, I did. Because for me, pulling people together in Warringah was about we need to be more collaborative. We need to seek to understand before being understood. You know, you have to understand people's position. Why are they concerned about taking stronger action on decarbonising? What are their reluctance? Not everyone. Everyone identifies with the uh, Extinction Rebellion, you know, strong green kind of activism. A lot of people are, I would say, sensible centre that want to see credible, logical policies around decarbonising, around economic management. It's sort of a sound policy. They understand that it needs to be collaborative. You need to bring everybody on board. So for us, the focus in Waringa was um, very much about how do we bring everyone on board towards better policy and as an independent, bring forward solutions that maybe the major parties are a little stuck in their corner and can't quite come around to the table to try and mediate the issue, find the middle ground so that we can all move forward with better action.
2: Martine, what have you learnt in your unique combination of roles, lawyer specialising in this area and the advocate, the leader for a major conservation organisation, about how you best talk to people about climate
4: I think it's very important to listen, to hear what people think. I think Zali's point is right. Everyone comes from a different perspective. And there are sometimes those who, no matter what you say, will never move. They just have a particular position, whether that's the Alan Jones of the world. Um, I have a number of friends who I play touch football with who are very in that camp, and no matter what I say, I will never convince them. But then there are others who who are really interested to learn. Often you find people have been told a particular line or have been told a particular point of view, that just simply isn't true. So you need to spend the time to unpack that and to explain what's really going on. And you have to build confidence because someone will say, well, why should I believe you? And people always have reference points. So there'll be some people who'll always believe what's in the Australian or will always believe what's in the Guardian. And you have to sometimes come to it with, I guess, more impartial points of view and to also have people listen to people who they respect and don't see as having a vested interest. And it's really just a process of trying to explain and also telling stories and giving examples is very, very powerful. When people get to see things that are happening in the real world, they will sometimes you know, say, oh, that's really interesting. And your example before of the US gas industry collapsing from a financial point of view, if you actually speak to someone who's an investor and you present that, that investment material, they'll suddenly stop and think, oh, that's interesting. Maybe what I'm thinking is not right. So you have to find what resonates with that individual and why is it important to them, and then just go through a process of, I guess, trying to change the understanding. But also listening at the very beginning as to why they have that view is very important. And sometimes people have a view for no particular rational reason. It may just be because that's a friend's view or it's something they heard somewhere else. and, And then there are also many people who change their view constantly. And so understanding that as well. I mean, as a as a former Premier, you were an experienced politician, you would understand those in the middle who swing, I guess. Uh, there are those at the edges, but there are those who are more open-minded, I guess, and that's often who you're trying to convince.
5: I know there is urgency, you know. I, I read the article about the ice caps and the record temperatures within the Arctic Circle, and that, that is scary. Oh. But most people don't react well to...
2: The stranded polar bear, they don't yeah. react to that, it seems too distant or far-fetched?
5: If we talk too much about the gravity of the situation, unfortunately people have a tendency to then think well it's too hard, too late, too difficult I can't do anything about it. So it's one of those things of how do we get everybody on board. I sort of sort of visualise that we have to get everybody on board a bus, make it an electric bus and we will start going slowly but we can gradually speed up once we have everyone on board. And so the extreme talk I find disenfranchises a lot of people in the community, and that is why we then don't have a consensus to move forward. So, everyone needs to feel like their voice is going to be recognised.
2: The problem solution format works very well in politics, and I think that can be applied to this great challenge. I think that quite often in, in this area, people talk about
4: the problem and they talk about a solution being maybe, as we're talking about, you know, a new gas pipeline. On the other side of the debate, we talk about decarbonising, and here are the big picture policies. We need to show more of the solutions. So, for example, one of the other roles I have is, is chairing the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and in that agency we've invested in many really fantastic projects. And one thing that many people don't understand is that Australia has led the world on the efficiency of solar panels. The University of New South Wales has done great work on that for 20 years. We are world leaders in that space. So that's fantastic, it's exciting, it's Australian ingenuity. There's a lot of examples where we can lead the decarbonisation race and to actually demonstrate that's really important. And anybody who loves driving a petrol car, when they get an electric car that goes twice as fast, is always very excited. So that is also something, examples and as you said, problem solution and problem positive solution also I think often help.
2: Thank you, Martine and thank you, Zali. Good luck with your legislation. I think you've made the case for it very well in this discussion. And thanks for your time here on the UTS campus.
1: That was UTS industry professor Bob Carr in conversation with MP for Warringah Sally Stiegel and chair of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency Martijn Wilder on the 23rd of June this year. And just as we publish this episode, some news hot off the press on Zali's bill, Climate Change National Framework for Adaptation and Mitigation Bill 2020. The bill calls for a positive response to the challenges of climate change, including generational equity and just transitions. The bill was referred to a Standing Committee on the Environment and Energy on the 11th of November 2020. And whether the bill becomes law is yet to be seen. Next time on the UTS for Climate podcast, in our fourth episode, we'll hear from Tim Buckley, the Director of Energy Finance Studies at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He tells us the age of coal is well and truly over.
5: The coal industry went from saying, oh, China's going to be the saviour of the coal industry for the world, and then, oh, China peaked in coal in 2013. India's
0: going to be the great white elephant of the coal industry, and that didn't happen.
1: I'm Erica Wagner. I hope you can join me then.
0: UTS for Climate was created in response to the 2019 Student Strike for Climate. It is a statement of the university's commitment to addressing the global problem of climate change through our research, our curriculum and operations. To continue the discussion about climate change and to see some of the inspiring projects UTS researchers are working on, go to the UTS for Climate website, utsforclimate.uts.edu.au. That's UTS, the number 4, C-L-I-M-A-T-E, The UTS for Climate podcast is made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney, in collaboration with the Institute for Sustainable Futures. At Impact Studios, we combine academic research with audio storytelling for real-world impact. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded.
3: The Climactic Collective